This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have an absolutely great show today. We're going to start with the collapse of the Israeli uh, government after their massive destructive attempt to undermine basically the integrity of existence in Gaza. So we're going to be talking about the military excursion and destruction that uh, the Israeli military engaged with in Gaza. And then live, also in studio, in the uh, second half of the show, we're going to be meeting with Serge Bakalian and Anne Sulis from the Arab Film and Media Center. Anne Sulis has done a great uh, documentary about Gaza. So it all kind of fits together. So let's um, let's talk a little bit about Gaza, Jamal. Well, the big news, of course, uh, Avigdor Lieberman announced his departure from Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition in a very punchy press conference in which he accused Netanyahu of capitulating to Hamas terror with the truce that halted fire on the Israel-Gaza border yesterday after uh, two days of battle. So Avigdor Lieberman was not satisfied with the death and the destruction that happened, you know, uh, and, and, and we want to backtrack a little bit and start talking about what really happened in the so-called botched operation. And this is, by the way, a first when the Israeli media admits that this operation and this incursion to assassinate and target Hamas members was botched because they've lost uh, one of their lieutenant colonels during uh, this operation and, and another one was injured. And then they were faced with a major retaliation and barrage of uh, rockets targeting uh, Israelis. And of course, uh, uh, that went on for a couple of days. And when Israel also attacked the uh, Hamas's Al-Aqsa TV, you know, targeted also journalists. So, so now they've reached a truce, which, by the way, was also violated. The truce, because, the truce was because, violated, Because immediately after the truce, Israel uh, killed a Palestinian fisherman in Gaza. But nevertheless, the coalition of Benjamin Netanyahu now is threatened to really collapse because Avigdor Lieberman, the colonial settler from Moldova, previously a bouncer who became... Israel's foreign minister and defense minister, he had two, two posts, is not satisfied with the bloodshed. Yeah. So here's the deal on Avigdor Lieberman, Jamal. He, he has been a proponent of ethnic cleansing. He's been a proponent of mass transfer of Palestinians uh, out of historic Palestine to transfer them into Jordan. Uh, into Lebanon, into other places. He's been an advocate for basically terminating the lives and extinguishing the lives of indigenous Palestinians living in Palestine. That's his uh, claim to fame as the defense minister. And so we have to keep in mind that him leaving the cabinet of Benjamin Netanyahu is branded, is staged, to fit his mold of being this tough guy. In reality, he's nothing but a colonial settler. 
He has been advocating colonial settler activities and policies for the government of Israel since he's been there. But I think we need to even take a step back from that. Let's not forget, Jamal, that Gaza has been under siege now for over 10 years. It's been under an economic siege by land, air, and by the sea. That everything that comes in and out of Gaza is completely maintained, monitored, and surveilled by the Israeli military. Things can't go in or out. And in fact, last week before Avigdor Lieberman uh, you know, they started this uh, aggressive military complaint. They decided that they would halt in the middle of or getting close to the wintertime, Jamal, when the electricity is basically, what, a few hours a day in Gaza, that they were going to hold all fuel supplies coming into Gaza. So Gaza continues to be under siege. It's economic foundation is basically been destroyed by the Israelis. It's medical and psychosocial infrastructure, which we will hear more about when we speak with Anne Sulis uh, later on her documentary film, has been decimated for well over a decade now. The situation is grave for Palestinians living in Gaza, and yet the Israeli military chose... Just to put things into perspective, because a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with Gaza, you and I have been to Gaza, and our guest, who will be coming later on, and she has a documentary... Uh, that was recently filmed, was 2015, you know, also she filmed in Gaza. But to put things into pers- perspective, just you know, Gaza is 6.8 miles by 32 miles, and which is basically gives it a, a total square foot, uh, I mean, a total 141 square miles. Yeah, it's nothing or 365 kilometers. Yeah, it's nothing. It's And it's got, you know, probably 1.6 million Palestinians living there, 80% of whom are, you know, refugees as recognized by the United Nations. It is arguably one of the most densely populated pieces of uh, real estate anywhere in the world right now. And uh, rather tragically, Jamal, the people in, you know, Palestinians living in Gaza have been living under this bone-crushing siege from which the international community has really done very little to either put pressure on the Israelis or to do uh, do anything to eliminate the, the really abject suffering that has gone on there. So what happened? Did Israel miscalculate? Israel always miscalculates, Jamal, in, in the larger political context— because the Israelis now have the cover of Donald Trump and the Trump administration, and up until recently they also had the cover of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the Israelis were actually having cover to even extend further into their plan of removing anything Palestinian from Gaza and the West Bank to continue their pattern of ethnic cleansing. So I want to talk a little bit about the uh, media coverage in the United States and in the West, because this is really troubling. It's not the first time and it's not going to be the last time. You know, when it comes to Gaza, when it comes to the West Bank, when it comes to Palestinian issues, guess what, uh, Jess? Uh, Israelis are killed. And sometimes even, uh, you know, the, it's described in horrific ways. Uh, they're, they're killed because of terrorism or because of rockets and whatever. And guess what? Palestinians mysteriously die. Mysteriously. This is the headlines that we have seen 
on uh, American media. We've seen this also on British media. I'm not making this up. No, it's right. All what you have to do is Google it. You know, from The Guardian and other, what do you think, progressive media outlets, when it comes to the description of the Palestinians, they're just like, oh, they've, you know, six Palestinians died, but Israeli soldiers were killed. And this is something that they have to call, you know, about. Right. And, and reminded time and time again, not to make that, you know, not to try to make that uh, parallel right. of, of in the way how people die because uh, it's, it dehumanizes Palestinians right. and make them uh, into disposable objects, basically. Well, I, I think that's exactly right, Jamal, just in terms of the media coverage. The media coverage about this uh, military destruction that, is, that happened in Gaza. And, and let's keep in mind that, you know, the 1.6, 1.7 million Palestinians living in Gaza right now, ha- because of the siege that they've been under and because of the nature of the, their existence, you have the third or fourth largest, most powerful military in the world dropped with F-16s and, you know, supersonic fighters and, and, you know, from the land and from the sea, bombing Gaza and every single target. And this is really important for our listeners to know. When the Israelis drop a 500-pound or a 1,000-pound bomb or fire a missile into Gaza, every target is a civilian target. There is no way you can drop a bomb anywhere in Gaza or send a missile into Gaza without hitting a civilian target or killing innocent civilians, full stop. So the coverage of that is always what, Jamal? It's poor Israel is under this, you know, attack from Gaza, which is ridiculous. And well, I mean, I mean, I mean, to begin with, no one talks about that Israel broke that truce because uh, right. a couple of days before that, Israel actually allowed money to go into Gaza, Qatari money, to pay Qatari the money. salaries right. of uh, the government employees there. Who haven't been paid for a long time. Right? And then when Benjamin, and just shortly after Benjamin Netanyahu landed in Paris, the botched, the so-called botched operation began. Yes. And that's why he had to cut his visit short right. and rush back because he received news that they have sustained a major loss, one of his lieutenant colonels. And by the way, and this is a whole different subject, that person happened to be a Druze. Interesting. Yeah, so this is the first casualty. And the Israeli media tried to cover his name, referring to him as Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel M. His name is Muhammad, by the way. His first name is Muhammad. You know, they didn't want to say and, Muhammad. And they, and they didn't want to say from which town and country, but it's very typical also because this is something also to talk about, the fact that Israel's recent racist law, the state law that they came up with, makes Israeli citizens who are not Jewish second-class citizens, That's right. and the, the Druze are the ones to suffer immediately, of course, because they have assumed that they are, you know, they, were, they had a, an equal stake in the Israeli state, and now, after 70 years, they found out that they are second-class citizens. Well, you know, Jamal, this is part of the overall picture that I think we should talk about to kind of contextualize politically what's going on 
because we know, and we've been speaking about this quite a bit on Arab Talk, about the close allegiance and alliance between um, the Trump administration and the Netanyahu administration. And, you know, they share many things in common. And I think, you know, in the present context, we need to just, like, point out not just, you know, what they share in common, but the similarities in terms of the divisions that both these administrations are foisting and fostering, you know, in, in, in the world right now. Let's not forget, Jamal, that the uh, ACLU and the New York Times published just this week this massive list of domestic white terrorism that has been happening in the last two or three years in the United States. The, the number of domestic terrorist acts that have occurred in the United States in the last few years is an astronomical number. And basically what this report in the New York Times uh, found out, Jamal, is that the FBI has been behind the curve in terms of targeting, ferreting out, identifying, and protecting U.S. citizens from domestic terrorists. The bulk of the domestic terrorists in the United States, Jamal, are white supremacists that are being encouraged, and some people might say uh, led to incitement by some of the rhetoric that is coming out from the Trump administration and specifically from Donald Trump's tweets. So my question to you, Jamal, is it any kind of coincidence that this context of hate and you know, white supremacy that is being foisted on the United States right now with this renewed energy. What's the connection with the settler colonial project uh, in Israel? Well, you said the key word, which is settler colonial project. And this is actually parallels with the white supremacist settler colonial pro- project in this country. Yes. When you have, you know, people now almost on a, I don't want to say on a daily basis, but almost, almost there we hear, you know, this whole kind of white privilege attacks on African-Americans, attacks on immigrants, attacks on people of color. You know, uh, we have hundreds of videos now in this country. Right. I mean, and thank God that people are armed with, instead of weapons, armed with their phones to capture these. That's I mean, right. just just uh, today I saw a new video of this woman uh, screaming and using the n-word you know just over a parking issue over a parking over issue. over a parking issue you know uh, you know targeting an african-american lady who kind of exited from the wrong exit or something like this calling the police or calling someone and 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 that's how she was referring to her you know the day before someone went berserk because there was a demonstration in front of a, a confederate Confederacy monument, you know. Right. So every day you see something new. Uh, also, yesterday, someone in a in a, in in an opera uh, screamed "Heil Hitler!" Right. Yeah, in the United in States. In the United States, the bigots, the Islamophobes, the homophobes, the racists—they're all coming out of the woodwork. And this is not a coincidence. No, it's. And then Palestinians have been facing the same 
type of supremacists in their own homeland, by the way, right. in places like Hebron, where people are new immigrants, or in Hebrew, they've new arrivals, taken over Palestinian homes from the United States, from Brooklyn, from uh, France, from Russia, treating the indigenous population you know, like garbage. Well, I, I actually, Jamal, I want to ask you a question because you have this special and unique skill set. And uh, I know you speak and understand Hebrew. And one of the things that uh, I'm really curious about, because um, there is a radio station, uh, it's, a, it's a settler radio station. It's the Israeli settler radio station that broadcast to all of the illegal settler colonial projects that that are dotting the West Bank and and Jerusalem right now. And I heard just a little bit about the the call to arms, the call to violence. And I know that you've you've kind of um, been monitoring that radio station at times. I wonder if you could give our listeners a sense of the kind of rhetoric that comes from this this radio station of the settler colonialists. Well, you don't have to go that far. You don't even have to talk about the settler radio that broadcasts in the in the West Bank, but even on on uh, Israeli TV. I mean, definitely there is the the there is Arutz Shiva. That's one you know which is popular with the Likudniks and the settler movements. And you should hear the vile language they use on a daily basis. The incitement against Palestinians. The call for terror, for expulsion. It's actually the same language that, that Avigdor Lieberman uses. That's right. I mean, he calls for Palestinian, you know, transfer and expulsion and, and sending them into Jordan, beyond the Jordan River. They use, you know, the same terminology when it comes to ethnic cleansing. But also, if you watch Israeli uh, TV, you know, I mean, just... Um, just a couple of days ago, and in fact, no, it's just yesterday. All what you have to go is uh, go, you could check it out on Haaretz. Yeah. By the way, they have an article. It's an opinion article. Israelis like their racism sweetened. That's the title of the article. Wait a minute, that's a, that's an article. Yes, for, this is the title. You could go, from, yeah, from watching Haaretz? the jovial interview with Jewish terrorist Yitzhak Gabay aired on Channel 20. This is a legitimate Israeli TV channel. Channel 20 was like watching Israeli society caught with its pants down. This is the description. This is what the person who, who wrote about this. And so what is he talking about? This is He's talking about basically a Jewish terrorist. I'm not kidding. This is by this is this is a terminology used on Israeli TV. There were five Jewish men present in the Channel 20 studio, Channel 20 studio, when the interview took place. One of them is Ari Shamai, who is a leftist. They discussed what Gabai had done, right? And the atmosphere was positively jolly. One could even call it celebratory. They laughed, they joked, and what Gabai did was extremely grave and criminal. He set fire, Jess, to a school. Oh, yeah. You know, this is the incident. So, so they glorify the terrorists. Yeah. Now, if you had this on any kind of Arab TV or on any other TV, there'll be cries of anti-Semitism. Right. There'll be cries, you know, all over the world, and justifiably so when you, when you, when you invite a terrorist, when you call for incitement. But this was actually aired right there 
on Israeli TV, these type of conversations. And then if you also tune in to Arutshiva or, or go to their Facebook page or their Twitter feed and see all the racist comments and call, calls of incitement to expel Palestinians, you know, your hair will get grayer than it is now. It is right <laughs> now. But, but, but I guess the point that we're trying to make, Jamal, is that this close association if you will, between the kind of resurgence of uh, white supremacy and attacks on people of color and communities of color here in the United States and the cover with which the United States allows Israel to carry out their, their ethnic cleansing and settler colonial project in historic Palestine. Because we have, did, uh, we didn't hear anything about the, the war in Gaza, really, you know, with, with the numbers of Palestinians that were killed, the number of buildings that were destroyed, the, the squeeze on food, water, and medicine going in and out of Gaza, basically not going into Gaza. We, we, we didn't hear any of this. What we hear, though, Jamal, is poor Avigdor Lieberman is saying that Israel is not bloodthirsty enough. So I have to resign my post as defense minister because I wanted to continue the carnage that was being leveled on the uh, civilian population in Gaza. These two phenomenon, if you will, both in the United States and, and among, you know, the, uh, among the Israelis is really very striking right now. And I know you're going to be happy to hear this. Uh, another series of articles came out today and say, oops, it looks like the Trump Kushner peace plan is not working out so well right now. Um, you hear the sarcasm in my voice. We are further away from any kind of legitimate, peaceful um, process in Palestine right now than we've ever been. And so the Kushner's kind of attempt to solve the problem of Palestine, you know, is juxtaposed against this catastrophic kind of events that are happening in Gaza right now. I, I don't think you're surprised by that. No, I'm not surprised by this. And, uh, well, you know, if we want to talk about the peace plan, the peace plan was dead on arrival. It's just, just a joke to just to have the Palestinian Authority sign on a piece of paper, right. basically to usurp more Palestinian land. And, uh, and I think people are waking up to to the Oslo debacle, the, uh, <laughs> disaster, I shouldn't say debacle, yeah. the Oslo debacle, and any anything coming out of the White House will just drag Palestinians further further down the, basically that road of, of, uh, of uh, another Nakba on the ground. So Jamal, what, where are we right now when we think about uh when we think about what's happening in Palestine right now, there's those, there's the cultural, political kind of context that we've been talking about. We've talked about uh, the Netanyahu government kind of in this, you know, in terms of how it's being portrayed in this vulnerable state right now. Benjamin Netanyahu has three corruption uh, probes being leveled against him. Donald Trump is also under investigation. We have the Mueller probe. We have just absolutely nothing going on with the Kushner peace plan. But the missing piece in all this is Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia because the Kushner plan, if you will, was based on an analysis that uh, Saudi Arabia would get the rest of the Arab world in line 
Saudi Arabia would give money to the Palestinians to buy them off for this peace plan. But it looks like Mohammed bin Salman is having some difficult times right now. We know that the Saudi uh, ministry today announced the findings of the Khashoggi uh, investigation. And I'm here to report the breaking news to you, Jamal. Mohammed bin Salman, his hands have been, he's been totally uh, vindicated and had nothing to do with the Khashoggi. Right, and murder. they're going to throw the uh, the assassins under the bus. No, they're going to throw them under the guillotine. Five of them under the guillotine. Yeah, they're going to throw them under. Five have been named, basically, they will receive. Which, by the way, this is another message to people who are reporting on this, because I read the headlines in the New York Times, and it said something like, Saudi Arabia will this time exercise, and I'm paraphrasing, the death sentence. Tell me when, when was it? When <laughs> never take it away. Saudi Arabia ever took that? I mean, they've been beheading people left and right, the opposition. Right. And so the way they make it sound like, you know, they're making this exceptional case now, and they are going to sentence these five uh, assassins to in, to death, but again, as you've said, uh, Mohammed Salman, by the way, his hands are clean. His hands are he clean. He knew nothing of it. He knew nothing about the two planes that took off with the two teams to arrive to Istanbul. He did not know that his one of his right hand men was involved. He did not know that the consul general of Saudi Arabia in Istanbul was present. Didn't know about the bone saw that the was fr- the transport. Forensic, the forensic All of examiner. this. Yeah. And guess who's helping him? Donald Trump yeah. and Benjamin Netanyahu want him to basically survive because right. he's the third partner of this peace plan of creating the Kushner dream plan right in to to make to, to to bring it into fruition so so if he sinks and they were counting on him to basically squeeze uh, Mahmoud Abbas because now Mahmoud Abbas has very He's got no sources. Yeah. He has very few sources left for money. Right. And one of those big sources is Saudi Arabia. And 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 now they've lost that. So I don't know how they're going they are going to recalibrate their plan. Uh, well, except well, that they face now a setback, you know, from at, at at least Netanyahu now is kind of in a pickle because of what happened in this botched operation in Gaza. And, and they might call early elections. Donald Trump also is in a pickle here because of the losses that, but, you know, even though he's in denial in the, in he's the, still in in, denial in the, in the house and all the different other scandals. And, and that, and, and uh, MBS has, has lost all the, I guess, Arab leaders' confidence. I mean, a lot of them, they pay no. him lip service, but they know. They know his history, no, basically. No, but this is, this is exactly my point, Jamal. This is why I wanted to bring it up. This is how and why all of this is, is connected. Because this is the uh, triangle of um, tyranny, as I, I like to call it. The triangle of tyranny, which is Benjamin Netanyahu, Mohammed bin Salman, and Donald Trump. And, and the three of them together are offering cover for each other. Because each of them has a lot of problems. Did so you that know? leaves us with uh, Jared Kushner. So Jared <laughs> Kushner is the errand boy. <laughs> it, exactly. Because you know that uh, when Mohammed bin Salman was 
facing his gravest challenge on the world stage, one world leader came to his defense, and that was Benjamin Netanyahu. Of course. Benjamin Netanyahu, the head of a settler colonial project, came to the defense of the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. What kind of world are we living in? This is Arab Talk. On KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM, we're going to take a short break. Uh, those who are following us on Facebook Live and YouTube, you, you stay with us. Stay with us. We're going to bring in our guests. And, and we're going to take a, a short musical break and bring our guests who will talk about her documentary, Under the Rubble, A Story from Gaza, directed by Anne Tsoulis. Yes. We'll be right back. Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. You know, Jamal, we're, we're really fortunate to have in studio with us two amazing people. One, a very dear friend and, you know, colleague, Serge Bakalian, who's the executive director of the Arab Film and Media Institute, which we're going to... We're going to talk about this because... We have to talk about this. Is, right. This is kind of the a The Arab deal. Film Festival, well, now it's an institute. Well, it's an institute. This or both. Been, well, it's been a dream of Serge's oh. All right. at my kind of hopefully a little bit of support to get him to go in that direction. And we're also very fortunate to have with us today Anne Sulis, who is a writer and a Greek-Australian director, and she is an award-winning filmmaker now, best documentary film from the Arab Film and Media, Arab, I wanna get this right, home of the Arab Film and Media Institute. Underneath that is the Arab Film Festival, right, Serge? That's yes. the way it goes, okay. I wanna make sure we get this right. So, uh, before we get to Anne, I wanna make sure that we give Serge a little time to talk about this great development of the Arab film and media. Well, first, though, I'm oh, yeah. going to... First, yeah, yeah. tonight, Thursday, yes. November 15th, don't forget the date, tonight, tonight, right? 7 p.m. Uh, at the Berkeley Friends Church, which is 1600 Sacramento Street in Berkeley, you'll, you are going to be screening Under the Rubble, and you're going to be there. Yes. Well, okay. hopefully she'll be there. She's so we just want to we just want to make she sure we just want to make sure our listeners that director Anne Tsoulis will be will present you know and she'll be there for a post screening Q and A, and yes. Serge will be also there, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. So Serge, um, the Arab Film Festival has been around for two decades. You know that, and as the executive director, I know that you've had a vision of Arab film and Arab media. And, you know, I'm very delighted that finally that dream has come into a reality of the Arab Film and uh, Media Institute. Tell our listeners a little bit about this this process and this amazing transformation. Sure. I mean, I would say we were, um, we were quite lucky that we had, at the point when we launched the Arab Film and Media Institute, that we had 20 years of the Arab Film Festival, which, uh, you know, we always say it's the largest and oldest festival of Arab films in the country, but actually is also one, the most important because we we premiere a lot of the films that other festivals won't touch. Right. And then luckily those films do get uh, 
more exhibition throughout the country. Right. And, you know, my thing with the Film Institute was it was wonderful to bring Arab films from the Arab world, from Europe to the States. But what I also wanted to do is take these films, well, two-pronged. One is to take these films into American high schools and now middle schools. We're doing that. Uh, but also to develop Arab American filmmakers here in the U.S. Right. Because a lot of times filmmakers here uh, don't get necessarily the support from uh, institutions in the U.S. because they're they're not making an Arab film. They're right. not, and I want to give Arab American filmmakers, storytellers, the freedom to make a film about whatever they want. So that's I might say, Serge, in my humble opinion, among all of the things that we do to promote the Arab world in the United States, and there's a lot that gets done. In my opinion, I think this is absolutely one of the most important projects that is going on anywhere in the United States. So congratulations. We need, and people need, people need to know that we need to support this. And, uh, Thank you. Appreciate that. Would you send out the website really quick? Sure. It's ArabFilmInstitute.org. Well, that's 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 not unusual. That's not yeah. an unusual name. But, but I also hope your listeners know how much you've you the critical piece you've played in this. So. Well, um, someday w- that story will be written. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to get written now because uh, we're still in our infancy. So. Yeah. Right. Right. But uh, uh, Serge, you know, really, just to toot your horn a little bit because you're not good at that. It's really been under your direction and leadership that the film festival and now the the institute has um, really blossomed, and the last couple of years have just been phenomenal. That as a segue, though, I think we need to talk about the film. Yeah, we need to talk about Anne Sulis and the winner and the winner of the best documentary film, which is Anne Sulis. And so, Anne, why would a Greek Australian even care about Palestine, let alone Gaza? Uh, maybe because I'm a humanitarian. Okay. I, don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, it just seems like. Uh, what? How did you get there? Let's start with that. Uh, okay. Well, I, I was in France making another documentary, and the person I was making the documentary discovered that his grandmother was Jewish, so he was watching the Shoah tapes. I don't know if you know about the Shoah interviews that document the lives of the Holocaust survivors, and one of them was talking about how they would herd people into barns, Jews into barns, and set the barns alight, and which shocked me. And then one day I was on Facebook and I saw a little animation made by these little Palestinian children Mm. about how their family, a hundred of them, were herded into a house and the Israelis just bombed the house. And I thought, oh, for God's sake, you know, this is a story... it was a beautiful little animation they made. It was 10 minutes long. It was harrowing. And I thought, this deserves a bigger story and more exploration. And I just had to tell the story because it was uh, upset me so greatly that it was it's gone on deaf ears. Yeah. And that five people had watched the animation. I just decided that I'd do something about it and make the film. You know, making a film and making a documentary film is difficult enough. Yeah. Okay, and uh, you know Jamal and I have been to Gaza multiple times. Yeah. We know how profoundly difficult it is just to enter into yeah. Gaza. So you were doing double duty. You had to get into Gaza, number one, and then number two, attempt to even make a documentary. Tell mm-hmm. us about that process and 
yeah. you know, how you got there and a little bit more about that whole that well, whole process. Yes. Well, I'm not Palestinian, so I thought I'd better enlist some Palestinian help. So I went to AFOPA, which is the Australian Friends of Palestine. Yes, great organization, by the way. Yeah, and the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. Yeah. And I saw their chair, deputy chairperson, Basim, and I went to Basim. I said, I want to go to Gaza. I want to make this documentary. Can you help me? And he said, well, they do study tours. You can make out you're going on a study tour. And they put me in contact with the study tour organiser. And she organised my visa uh, through an NGO sponsorship. And we did it very much on the sly like that. And I went there. I got held up in Athens for two hours. I lost my plane because they were interrogating me for two hours while I was going to Gaza. So this is in Athens at the airport. Yeah, this is even yeah, before you got there. Yeah, because they knew I was going to Gaza, but they wouldn't mention Gaza. And they wanted me to say I was going to Gaza, and I wouldn't. I just told him I was going to Jerusalem to light a candle for my brother-in-law who had lymphoma at the time mm -hmm. and passed away. Uh, so after two hours, they just, just they, you know, they couldn't break me basically, so they just let me through. Um, and then I went to Israel, which was a pretty kind of horrifying experience because I don't know, you know, that's another story in itself. And got into Gaza, and I was very happy to get to Gaza. It's a wonderful place, beautiful people. Uh, <laughs> it's a funny thing to say. Lovely food. <laughs> wonderful food. It's true. It is, and it is. And I didn't know what to expect when I went to Gaza after being through Israel and seeing soldiers and guns. But when you get to Gaza, there's no hint of an Israeli, no hint of a gun, no hint of anything, really, even the wall. It's like a little country of its own, and the people is very peaceful, and uh, it was amazing. And they welcomed me with open arms. They were so excited that you know someone cared enough to tell their story, and and I, you know, I was worried for them. I said, "You sure you want to tell the story?" You, you know, you, they said, "We don't care. We want the world to know what happened to us, and we don't want it to be forgotten," because it was. They went. Jimmy Carter helped them to go to the United Nations. Right, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And of course the United Nations said that the Israelis didn't commit any war crimes. So what I did was I tried to piece together what happened in that week that their neighborhood got invaded by the IDF, uh, a day-to-day -day depiction through the eyes and through the narration of the children. They tell the whole story. I don't tell the story, they tell the story in their own voice. and. Uh, we also used parts of their animation that they made. Uh, that acts as a Greek chorus throughout the doco. And I think people get moved by that, quite, you know, the innocence of it. It's very, very powerful. So um, uh, the responses to it have been incredible. I think, I think you know, in Australia, we, every, every screening we've had has been full. People walk out shell-shocked. They finally get it what it is like to be a Palestinian living in a war zone and having, you know, being fish in a barrel shot at. Yes. Uh, nowhere to flee, nowhere to escape. I got a message the other day from my co-producer in Gaza. They bombed his house. He told me he was running in the streets with his two-year-old and his wife trying to figure out where they could go for safety because you just don't know where the next bomb is going to be hit. I had the Samuni children, the same children, messaging me saying they're bombing all around and of course every time they bomb around they just 
freak out. Of course. You know, so it, it's a constant thing. It's a, it, it, it doesn't end for them. And they have no, you know, it's like Zanette, their mother says, you know, they've given me a house, but I'm not interested in fixing up the house. Tomorrow it might not be here. Why would I care about the house? Because it's no guarantee it will be there tomorrow. So it, it, it's a constant anxiety about the future. Yes. And what it will hold. But at the same time, they're all going to university now, these kids. Right. They're all going to uni. They have aspirations for the future, you know, which is the contradiction. In well, yeah, ways. isn't that the ultimate contradiction that, yeah. you know, being on the precipice of destruction and existential threat every day and yet still having hope about being able to go to university and make something of your life? Yes, yes, it, it's quite phenomenal, really. Uh, the resilience is phenomenal. And when you see the children in the film, how they talk, they're so articulate, they're so beyond their age, you know. So would, would, you, would it be fair to say that your whole perspective on Palestine went through a transformation from your experience in Gaza? Uh, not so much on Palestine, but on Gaza, because I Gaza. didn't know much about Gaza You'd, until okay. I went to Gaza. I didn't know what to expect. Um, I knew the history, of course, um, and for me it was important to document the first war. Yes. Because what people don't understand is that before the first war, Gaza was a very prosperous farming region. They had no idea about war. So when, when the Israelis came and attacked them in the first war, they had no idea what was going on. They couldn't fathom that someone was invading them because they'd right. never been invaded before. They never had ground troops right. come in. And so the whole, whole of Gaza was just in shock. No one knew how to deal with it. You know, it, they say in the documentary, the doctors say, we didn't know where they were coming from, who was bombing them, what were they being bombed with. It was just like a surprise attack, uh, totally unprepared. Well, most people also don't realize that the vast majority of the Palestinians who live in Gaza, I think about 80%, all come from historic Palestine. Yes. So they all left their homes in Jaffa and Haifa and Akka and wherever. In fact, if you've been to the, uh, uh, the refugee camps, you know, they've started these camps there by alphabetical rows. So, for example, if you're in row A, that's Akka, and then if you're in row J, that's from Jaffa, and H is Haifa, and so forth, because they were all, you know, put there as temporary shelters. That's the whole idea that these people were going to return. So, so when you talk about, like, meeting with the children, for example, you probably... You're meeting with the great-grandchildren of the initial refugees. And so these children were born there. They've never been to their hometown or, or village, but they all know about their towns and their villages. You know, right. they and can tell you from stories of their grandparents about their origin and, and you know, where their grandparents came even, from. And not even the grandparents, their parents as well. Yes. The parents as well were... You know, Zanette, their mother, had never, her, the grandmother had, but Zanette, the mother, had never experienced war, had no idea about war, yeah? And there she was, her husband, her four-year-old was killed, 48 members of her extended family killed, and she was left with seven children, you know, trying to protect them during the war and mm -hmm. after the war. And, and it, it's phenomenal. Her, her, she's the superwoman. She's unbelievable. She's a lioness. Yeah. And that's what the women are like there. Because they, they had, at the end of the day, it, 
they were the ones left looking after the old, the aged, the children. And um, it, it, it's, it's an incredible situation to be, but the documentary itself is really a very personal journey, a very personal story. And I think one of the, they say, is the worst incident of any Gaza war that's mm -hmm. have occurred. It, it, it's just heart-rendering. Yes. And when people walk out of the cinema, they just, they finally get it. They really find, don't you think, Sturge? Sturge? They Absolutely. finally get it. By yeah. the way, we're speaking with <laughs> Anne Sulis, a documentary filmmaker, writer, award-winning filmmaker, now best, document <laughs> <laughs> best documentary film at the Arab Film Festival. And joining us today is also Serge Bakalian, executive director of the Arab Film and Media Institute. Um, so, I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, this the Samuni family. I mean, you know, we're talking about, and and people here have a hard time under understanding the depth and the breadth of the traumatic exposure mm -hmm. that people mm -hmm. in Gaza go through on a daily basis, and then superimposed on that this kind of mass tragedy of you know, rounding up a hundred people, putting them into a home, and then from one family, from one family, and then basically bombing it. B you know, destroying, maiming, killing, destroying this entire family. It's hard for people to, yeah. It's hard for but people. It gets to worse. It gets worse just because they told them they would put them in that house for safety. Safety, right? They always say that this is for your safety. Yeah, but they left. What happened was that they left a mile six children in that rubble for four days right the soldiers were all around them they could hear them calling out for help they could hear them calling out for food for water they had no food the only water they had was what was there for the chickens and that's what kept them alive for four days and and they wouldn't let red cross in red crescent the international community it was a no-go zone no one was allowed in there to rescue the, the the people trapped, injured, to collect the bodies. And they were, once the Samuni's children came out, they wouldn't let anybody in the area for 18 days. Mm -hmm. So when the Samunis went back to their street, because they all lived on one big long right. street, all the bodies were decomposed. Their father, you're going to pick up your relative and 18 days later, yes. you could under, understand the stench Yes. That they had to go back to. And the children talk about that in their animation as well. So it, it, it's quite horrific, horrific that people, you know, that you could be a soldier in a house across the street and listen to these kids screaming and crying for four days. Yeah, and not doing anything about it. So I have a question for you, Anne. Yeah. I mean, you have a new prime minister who's uh, very um, in the mold of maybe not as bad as Donald Trump, but in the mold of conservative kind of leadership now of your of your of your country, Australia now. I am curious about the typical average Australian and their understanding of Palestine. I mean you're doing your part to kind of bring some awareness of what's happening in Gaza, but mm. what is the typical Australian's perspective on what's happening in Palestine right now? Well it's interesting because people understand now what's going on. No one believes. You you think that? Myth. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Even though just from the just from the outside, I mean, people think that at least the Australian government is 100% tilted towards 
Israel and, and promoting its, its occupation. And there were talks even about moving the embassy into Jerusalem. Well, they're still talking about that. You have to understand that uh, uh, Australia is has a very, very strong Jewish lobby. Mm -hmm. And a very powerful... I mean, I tried to get this on television. Israeli lobby. Yeah, I tried to get the documentary on television on our public broadcaster, Monocultural. No way. No, Monocultural. Way. no way. And the, when they were telling me no, they couldn't screen it, they were actually screening the Israeli Film Festival online. <laughs> yeah? And, you know, we started off, it went to uh, two very prominent film festivals, and when they got wind about it, it didn't go to any, it wouldn't get accepted anywhere. Yeah. It's, it's... Uh, and uh, listen, that's the voice of Anne Sulis, documentary filmmaker, writer, Greek-Australian. Interesting combination. For food, I'll go with the Greek side of things, <laughs> if you don't mind. Listen, we're like you. We don't necessarily agree with our leader. Right. So please don't judge us by a leader because we're all waiting for the next election. Yes, well... Uh, we're all desperately waiting for yes, the next election. Yes. <laughs> and so tell us about, again, the, the, screening the screening tonight. tonight. It's on at 7 o'clock. Yes, in Berkeley. At the Berkeley, sorry, I don't forgot the address. Church. American Friends uh, <laughs> Church in Berkeley on Sacramento Street. But and it's free, by the way. Yeah, but yeah. and then and, and you're going to be there for Q and A. Yeah, and, and Serge will be there. But Anne, give us your website where people can learn more about you and your work. Well, I'll give you the website for the film, which is uh, from under the rubble.com. Uh, they can look at, and they can find us on our Facebook page. From under the rubble. Yeah, yeah, from under, the, from under the Rubble Facebook page. Um, and uh, and our website is fromunderthe-rubble.com. Um, and please join us, follow it, and see where it's going to screen next. Thank so tonight, Thursday, November 15, 7 p.m., Berkeley Friends Church, 1600 Sacramento Street in Berkeley, which is two blocks from North Berkeley, Bart Station. And, Don't uh, miss it. And Serge, thanks so much for your your leadership and uh, good luck with the development of the Arab Film and Media Institute. Thank you all for joining us on Arab Talk today. You can send us your comments to ArabTalk at KPOO.com. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on SoundCloud. Follow us on our homepage, Arab. iTunes. But go, go, to find about all these things, go to ArabTalkRadio.com. ArabTalkRadio.com, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>